Hello, good afternoon. I'm Alex Mozed, and you're here on Winner Take All on our inaugural LinkedIn live stream. Been trying to get into this thing, and finally, they've let us in. Maybe the other people were a little scared to have us live streaming on LinkedIn, but here we are. And what do we talk about on this show? We talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. And we just try to make a little bit of sense of what's going on out there. I'm joined by Nick Johnson, a co-author with me on the book, Modern Monopolies. And uh, to start it off, we're going to talk about our favorite Chinese hardware and telecom manufacturer, Huawei. Um, basically, we've talked a lot about how the Huawei smartphone business, at least outside of China, particularly in places like Europe, is dead on arrival due to the U.S. sanctions that cut off companies like Google and Android and all of the killer apps that come with Android to work with companies like Huawei. Not just the apps, but the APIs really that come with that. that these apps hook into things like location APIs are definitely key for a lot of these apps. And without it, you've got to rewrite all this stuff. Uh, not just in your application, but Huawei itself. It's a big so, deal. So we we were talking about Huawei's phone launch, the Mate 30. Now they said, hey, we're going ahead with it anyway. And we said, that's probably not a good idea. And they've gone ahead. And, and apparently their plan was to basically try to trick Google and still get access to the Key killer Google apps. What are the key killer Google apps? Things like Google Maps, uh, Gmail, um, you know, all of the kind of <laughs> the app store, the the app store, the Google Play Store, Google yeah. Play Store. Right. I mean, there's a number of other ones as well. Right. But so they tried that this article calls it a workaround. Um, <laughs> they were legit trying to basically kind of loophole their way into using these apps and it says so they they lost their ability because google found out about it and then cut off access um to their proprietary google apps but um <laughs> you know they were just trying to go ahead anyway with the launch and i guess what I, I expect that google wouldn't realize that these phones are backdoor funneling themselves into using Google Apps through... They were what, like sideloading the apps, right? Rather than going through the traditional process. So I think their hope was maybe Google would let it slide. But I think in the current environment, that maybe was a little naive. Yeah, it was. <laughs> so you would you manually download and install the apps. And so they were basically trying to like hard code it um, rather than have them come pre-installed. And just, you know try and do it and get around the regulation. And we had spoken about this before where Google absolutely knows, actually Google could have probably more aggressively enforced the ban on Huawei in the sense that um, I think the older phones, the already existing Huawei phones that are using Google um, apps and services, I think, I believe they're still able to continue to use those apps. It's really just for the new things that are coming out this has been taken away from. So they tried to get around that. They tried to still launch the phone. I mean, the phone is screwed. There is no way this phone is successful outside of China. Um, it just won't work. And so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna buy the hardware if I don't get all the functionality that comes with millions of apps and 
that even if I can get them, you know, if I can sideload them or figure out how to get them, they're not going to work without all the APIs and stuff from Google Play services. Yeah. And there's no not, way. Not going to work. You know, there's rumors that the Chinese government was going to give Huawei, I don't know, give somehow magically where this IP comes from, but give them an operating system. And they could use that to replace Android. And as we've talked about this, the, before, and the name of the show is winner take all, which means there's only one or two winners in any given platform environment. And that is absolutely iOS and Android, particularly outside of China, and especially in places like Europe. And so even if Huawei has the technology for a competitive mobile operating system, there is no way that they can play the chicken and egg game. There's no way that they can have enough the, consumers. The operating system, the technology isn't problem is that they have this huge network of developers that right. suddenly just goes poof. The, the technology is anymore. a commodity. The right. power is in the ecosystem. So um, yeah, Huawei smartphone business outside of China is dead. It's done. Another linear business that we've spoken about many times before going to have a lot of problems because they're not a platform and competition is increasing and that is Netflix. And so there's a recent kind of survey done um, where they were asking people how likely they would be to sign up for Disney Plus uh, when that comes out in the near future. And so this said that 60% said they would keep Netflix over Disney Plus if they had to choose between the two. So what that also is saying is that 40% of people said they would rather choose Disney Plus, which, by the way, is cheaper. And this isn't even out yet. It's not even out yet. <laughs> They're choosing a hypothetical product. And I think it's $7 a month. Right. Um, I think but, the cheapest version is like $5 a month if you, oh, wow. if you prepay a, you know, a couple of years ahead. So of they, f they surveyed 400 Americans that are already streaming um, and asked them, you know, some more questions here. So uh, about two thirds surveyed said they intend to sign up for Disney plus in November. It's a pretty big deal. Um, and 60% of them said Marvel and star Wars were the main drivers as to why they would sign that up. Original content. Disney has these massive brands that have, been building for decades. Netflix doesn't really have anything that can compete with that, even though they've been investing in original content. This is not good news for Netflix. And it really goes to show you how, um, as we've said before, Netflix is really just a movie studio. They've been able to get out ahead of the other movie studios like Disney and Time Warner and others because they were first to digital and doing mobile and, and streaming. But they're basically just a subscription-oriented movie studio that had better technology for distribution. There's no supply-side network effect, and that's their challenge. As we've seen with movie studios, what makes a movie studio successful? Having hits. What makes Disney right. Plus successful? From this research, having hits the, like the, the Marvel fundamentals, and Star Wars. The fundamentals of the business are no different, even if the distribution mechanism has changed. And we've Maybe. seen that with Netflix's own numbers. Right. When they have hits, what happens to their boost in subscribers or 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 fewer cancellations? Right. It's the same same thing around. Um, what are some of the biggest Netflix hits? Right. It was what, Stranger Things. Stranger one Things. Of the exactly. Ones. That yeah. had a huge impact on earnings. Yeah. Um, there was a Kevin Spacey show that's no longer around. House of Cards. House of Cards. Yep. Right. I mean, there is a direct correlation. Netflix is obviously familiar with this. That's why they losing things like friends and the very popular sitcoms were actually big problems for them. And then they pantied up 500 plus million dollars or for one of the big sitcoms. And I think it was Seinfeld. Yeah, maybe. And so anyway, look, the streaming wars are heating up. Netflix is going to be a big loser.
what does Netflix hopefully can, I think the big unknown for Netflix is what, what do they do internationally? Can they have a lot of growth internationally? And the challenge right. for them internationally is people don't pay as much money for streaming internationally. The as competition they do. isn't e any easier there. If you look in India, uh, where Netflix is more expensive than the competition, even though it's like a fraction of the cost there that it is here. They're competing with Amazon. Yep. They're competing with uh, Reliance Geo, yep. which has its own streaming service, and there's several others. Yep. So it doesn't get any easier internationally than it does for Netflix here. Yeah, and you and you need to also invest in local content right. for all of these now, uh, you know, new geographies, Asians. new cultures. Some of it is obviously can can span all of them, like the mega hits, like Marvel and Star Wars, right? right? So. Um, yeah, we are not bullish on Netflix, if the, you can tell. Last thing on Netflix, too. I saw uh, a tweet this morning that apparently Disney has started essentially banning Netflix advertising on Disney properties. So that, that oh. competition is already heating up. Yeah, that makes sense. Disney Plus is coming out, what, about a month and a half from now? I think it's yeah. November 12th. So yeah. they're uh, Right they're around when, when new Star Wars comes out. Yeah, that's, that's, I think, early December. Yeah. And they're releasing a bunch of Star Wars shows uh -huh. on Disney Plus. Yeah. So, um, very, you know, again, going back to the, the point of this show, Tech Monopolies incumbents, what's happening here? Um, so this is very interesting. Rulala and Gilt are the same company. This fellow, Michael Rubin, uh, is the CEO of the combined entity. Both of those are actually linear businesses. So they buy inventory, they keep it on the balance sheet, they resell it. Um, Gilt's original business model was that they could get access to all of this kind of discounted merchandise and then resell it. But it was still a kind of wholesaler type of business model. It wasn't necessarily a marketplace where you have third-party sellers contributing the inventory, and 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 not and the marketplace doesn't take ownership over that inventory. So they're not really full marketplace. It's just really good kind of linear e-commerce shopping. Simon is the largest mall company in the United States. The CEO here, David Simon. Um, <laughs> says that they have over 20 or $25 billion in GMB. If you actually think about a mall, there is a platform dynamic right. to it connecting retailers. It's just one that doesn't scale because it's constrained by the economics of physical space yes, and how many stores you can fit in a location. Very physical, kind of not even 20th century, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, Been around for a while. First century. Yeah type of model like a bazaar in ancient Rome. But um, yeah, there's definitely a platform dynamic. So it was interesting in this interview here uh, on Squawk Box where he uses a lot of terminology that you would hear coming out of a marketplace company. He uses the term GMV. As we've researched before, GMV is a platform-specific metric. It doesn't exist for a linear retailer. It's a platform-specific metric. He talks about how they have $25 billion in GMV across all their malls, about how the one mall here in New York has at least a billion dollars in GMV. And so what did they do? So they partnered up. They did a JV. It looks like it's 50-50 ownership here um, on a website. And that website is called shoppremiumoutlets.com. And so what they're trying to do is take the inventory from a lot of these outlet malls that they have. Um, this one, uh, Woodbury Commons, was the one with a billion dollars in yep. GMV that he was referencing in that CNBC interview. So he says, hey, there's a billion dollars in, in, in GMV in Woodbury. How could we help our tenants 
Um, the seventh largest tenant was Forever 21 that we just covered on last episode that they gone bankrupt. Um, how can we basically help them not go bankrupt? How can we help them have e-commerce? How can we help centralize all of these brands, which is a marketplace concept, onto a common website and now let consumers buy from our you get tenants. The, you get the mall experience digitally where you go to one place and it's all there. Yep. Difference between rather than going to a physical store and then you know walking next door to the different one, you can select the different you know, companies on the website. And basically, I think Michael and, and Rue Gilt, uh, Rue Lala and Gilt, that combined entity, they're bringing the tech. And I think they're probably actually running this business um, in terms of understanding how to run a modern day e-commerce website business. Here, I am very optimistic, or I want to be very pro this, right? This is exactly the kind of stuff we need to see. If you are going to compete against large tech monopolies, we need to see more of these traditional incumbents um, having spinouts, working with tech players that are maybe smaller, um, and how can we have more competition with tech monopolies, right? I'm all about that. Although I'm a little skeptical of how this is being rolled out. Maybe, and I don't want to be too judgmental because this thing just launched and obviously they can change a lot of this, but it's not true marketplace to me. It is marketplace in the sense that this is a site that is taking the inventory from all the brands. Right. They don't own all, they don't own the inventory themselves. It's marketplace in that sense. My problem with it is, so I went and I said, okay, you know, let me, um, let me look for some stuff from Tom Ford. Okay. I like Tom Ford. Here's the problem. There's only 24 items from Tom Ford. Now I have been in the Tom Ford store in the, uh, Oh, What's it called? Woodbury the, Commons. Woodbury Commons. Yep. I've been there. I guarantee you they got more than 24 items of stuff in Woodbury Commons. They've got blazers. I've gotten a blazer from there. They've got different types of gear. All they have here are sunglasses and like one thing of cologne. So wh- what I'm getting at here is there is a big restriction on supply. Although with the support of Simon, they are helping to bring the initial supply and the initial inventory into the marketplace. This isn't as open as it needs to be. So they're clearly having challenges. How do I get all the stuff that's in the Tom Four and the Woodbury Commons stuff online? And that is a very difficult, just logistically very difficult thing to do. How do I get good imagery? How do I know what the price is? How do I just know what the what the items are? That's a huge challenge. The second thing is there is no way for me on this website, there's no sign up button. If I'm a seller, let's say if I'm an outlet store, not in a Simon property, I can't sell stuff on here, or at least I can't find a way to sell stuff on here. Right. How, do you, how do you scale this network from that initial, even if they get all the products from Tom Ford, still not a ton of inventory from just their tenants. Yep. You really need to figure out how do you open this up and go beyond that. And the challenge I think they're going to have is will their tenants let them? Uh, because they say, oh, why do I want to compete with these guys? But ultimately, if this thing is going to be successful, it's going to need to go much broader as well as deeper in terms of the inventory. Yes. And I don't think, I think, and part of the challenge, I'm just, I, I'm just guessing here. Okay. I don't really know. But if I'm Michael yeah. and I'm the Rue Guilt team, they probably know that this thing needs to open up beyond the tenants in Simon Properties. And let's be honest here. 
They're the biggest small company in the country. They're only doing $25 billion in GMV. It is a big number, but compared to the $277 billion of GMV from Amazon, it's not so big of a number. This needs to be much bigger. They need to open this up. I would think about Simon as helping to bring the initial inventory, helping to bring their brand, helping to bring bring these brands and merchants and tenants that are already working with Simon. You're helping to bring that supply. And that's a big advantage, right? Because you're seeding the marketplace. But there's no reason that you don't enable other inventory to come online, even if they don't have a lease with the Simon property. And I think that's a big, probably strategic conceptual issue. Right. This is an equal 50-50 JV. I bet that David Simon and the team there are wouldn't not wouldn't necessarily be too happy about that because they want this to be supporting the core business. Supporting the core business. And for this thing to actually work, it needs to be an independent business that is enabled by Simon's business. And if successful, could probably be worth more than. Simon's mall business, but it needs to grow beyond Simon. And it doesn't look like it's set up to do that. Maybe this is V1 and maybe they're coming out with future versions. I would love that. And they could still do that. So that's why I'm not totally knocking this. All I'm pointing out is that right now, I don't think this thing is set up to win. I think it's a good start and you could make the changes to have it win. But right now, I don't think this thing wins as it is today. Those are some strategic decisions that they've got to figure out and get behind, but it needs more inventory. That's the biggest thing. So anyway, uh, a good first step for Simon and, and Rue Gilt. More to come on that. Okay. Um, Kramer, Jim Kramer, you know, everyone's probably familiar with Jim. Mad money, Jim Kramer. Mad money. <laughs> says the gig economy shafts people and blames... Basically, we have the lowest unemployment in 50 years. We just had the the, the results come out. 3.5% unemployment in September of 2019, marking a new 50-year low. Uh, the jobless rate dropped 0.2 percentage points, 3.5%. Okay. And wages are up 2.9%, which it's, it's growth. But basically, Jim Cramer is saying, I do think there's the gig economy. This gig economy shafts people. You don't do as well in the gig economy. I was surprised that wages didn't advance that much. Da, 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 da. Basically, he's bra- blaming the gig economy um, and I guess automation, but you know he's ragging on the gig economy as to why wages aren't increasing. I think, number one, he's giving the Labor Department way too much credit that the Labor Department is actually able to measure wage increases accurately, which I guarantee you they're not doing. And I guarantee you the, the gig economy payments and wages are not properly being factored into overall wages uh, in the U.S. economy. How do I know this? Oh, because I was talking to one of the uh, Fed governors for Philly about whether or not the Fed is calculating GDP properly. He said, absolutely not. Why is that? Because they're not tracking things like GMV. We're not tracking things like um, all of the increased production for things on content platforms, like an Instagram. Oh, and by the way, Instagram, you know, is that technically in the gig economy? I would actually argue it is because all the people that have followings on Instagram 
are making money from their following on Instagram. There's this artificial distinction between basically producers on a platform and services marketplaces, basically, and producers on basically every other kind of platform. I don't really see a difference. You're still basically uh, an independent worker dependent on the platform, a producer on that platform, just because you know Uber and these kind of things fit into uh, pre, you know, old categories of uh, you know 1099 or not yeah, uh, workers. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't actually make sense to me that you know everyone's concerned about Uber drivers, but people aren't concerned about uh, YouTube content YouTube content creators. Right. Or people selling on Amazon and that they're able to make it's the same problem, which is producers, how they relate to the platform. And uh, does the platform basically abuse that market power to yes. take advantage of producers? Yes. It's the same problem across all these platform types. It just doesn't naturally fit into uh, you know, square peg kind of round hole uh, labor, labor market definitions and laws because these things are new and different. New business models, a new way of thinking about income. Right. And then you say, okay, well, um, how much production from a GDP standpoint do we get out of the content created on YouTube, on Instagram, on TikTok? I mean, people are making real money off of content platforms, whether that's sponsorships, whether that's, um, you know, so product sponsorships, whether that's people paying you to put up sponsored posts, um, whether that's, uh, you know, offline kind of doing events based on your following. And, and there's also a lot of value that comes from these things that isn't going to be reflected in GDP because pretty simply, like if I need to fix a faucet and I learn how to do that on YouTube and I don't have to pay someone, that's not going to be factored into GDP, though. There's a lot of economic value being created there. Yes. That's just one example among many. There's a myriad of examples. So anyway, this was my conversation with the, uh, the, the, the head of the Fed, Philly Fed. Um, we were at this conference in Aspen over the summer, if he's listening and doesn't remember when this happened. And um, we also then spoke about how they don't know how to accurately uh, track or measure inflation either for the exact same reasons, right? What if they have 100 products that they're tracking the price of those products and they're trying to measure inflation on that basket of products? They said, well, are you looking at how much these products cost on Amazon? Or are you looking at how much these products cost in Walmart, Right. And where are you sourcing these things? And, and all of the changes that are happening. And then you look at inflation or, um, you know, exactly to, you know, the, the content that's being created and, and, and all of this stuff that you used to pay for that now is free because of platforms. How do you calculate inflation? And basically the guy, I mean, it was a great, it was very frank and open about it. And he's basically saying, yeah, we haven't changed the methods. We haven't yet. Exactly. The right. methods aren't being updated. And so, yes, the, these are being historically benchmarked, but they're not being updated to account for the platform modern, dynamics. The modern economy, basically. Yep. Um, so that's a problem. Anyway, back to Jim Cramer's comments on the gig economy screwing people. I mean, these people, the large majority of people producing on platforms would not have even had the ability to produce had it not been for the platform. So right. I take issue with these comments. Well, there's that and also the, the causal relationship is wrong. These basically shift toward more temporary, more 1099 type jobs away from kind of permanent high wage positions is a secular trend that, I don't know, goes back decades. This isn't something that was invented when Uber came around in the 2000s. Uh, so the idea that the gig economy is causing this doesn't make sense to me. I think 
it grew when it did, partly because it overlapped basically with this trend of increasing kind of temporary work. Uh, but I, I would not say that it has been a cause or a reason that people are not able to find these jobs. Those jobs are coming from traditional enterprises that aren't hiring those kinds of things anymore. Now, the one area where there is some alignment between what he's saying and what we talk about is that when the tech monopoly is really tech monopoly status, you are a large tech monopoly, who, between the consumer and the producer, who can be taken advantage of and is right. the producer. producer. And so, but that's not really what he's getting at here. But, but yes, if I am a driver on Uber and my life, and, and let's say that is my main job, my main source of income, and I get a couple passengers that complain about me and give me a one-star review or say I'm really bad, or maybe they just, you know, fudge the star rating or a hit in their pocket. And like that happens a few times, you can be penalized by the platform. And right now there's no recourse um, for, for, for challenging. Um, penalties that come from the platform down to the producer, whether that's Uber or whether that's YouTube or whether that's Instagram. So it's really across the board, A, and then B, particularly on the platforms that have take rates, which is also a YouTube, but it's also an Uber or an Airbnb, um, the platforms at Amazon, they can raise rates on you and, and, and the producers basically are powerless, especially when there's only one or two dominant players in a given space, which is the natural um, endpoint for platform uh, industries. So those two things can have a huge adverse effect on producers, but that's, that's different. And he's not getting at that. So we wanted to kind of dig into that a little bit um, on some platform specific topics. Okay. So in plat, the ETF, there are 70 public platforms that, that, that uh, we identified with, with, um, which then Wisdom Tree created Plat, the ETF on it, and um, Market Access being one of those companies. Now, the past week, the stock market has kind of been all over the place. And so I wanted to take a, a deeper look at a couple of things. One thing being um, Market Access, which was up big time. So I pull up uh, their stock here. They're up 2.7% today. And you can see here for the week what they're up. Um, so the stock is doing very well. Why is the stock doing well? So it's interesting to kind of take a look at this. So basically, they announced volume. If you don't know what market access is, it's actually a marketplace for bond trading. Um, you wouldn't necessarily, I guess it kind of makes sense when you think about it, but it's not one of those things that you just say, oh, I guess... Yeah, there's a marketplace for bond trading. Market cap of $13 billion. Really cool company. Um, and so they announced their volume uh, for September. Basically GMV. Yes. volume. Exactly. And so it was up um, by about $40 billion year over year. So September of this year compared to September of last year. And um, basically what they're saying is there's a lot of volatility in the market. Makes sense if you look at what's going on just in the economy and and trade in these kinds of things. And so that that volatility helped to actually have them have a lot of a lot of growth and volume in GMB. Right. Kind of makes sense. More so volatility, more trading activity. Exactly. Um, so the stock was up five percent yesterday, Thursday, up another two point seven percent today. So um, it had a big jump. The company has an estimated eighty five percent. Okay, let me highlight this one. 
The company has an estimated 85% of the electronic market share in U.S. high-grade and high-yield bond trading. Can you say Monopoly? Winner take all. Winner take all. The name of the show. Um, it's a great stock. And uh, I don't give stock advice on the show, but it's a great company. And um, they are going to announce earnings later this month um, in October. But they do release these kinds of these trading numbers, not necessarily every month, but but um, the stock jumped based on that. Another stock that jumped big this week, which we spoke about on last on yet on Wednesday's episode um, was the Stars Group, which announced a merger. Uh, and now is creating the dominant online gambling community. Um, and so they were up 30%. I think they're up another few percent today. So anyway, I why do I bring this up? Well, a couple interesting stories on those platform stocks. But I've also been closely tracking the index. So if you do look at Plat, what you'll notice with Plat, it just came out in May and the Price changes in Plat don't track as frequently as you would another ETF that has much more volume, which is unfortunate. Eventually, that'll be fixed as there's more volume. But the thing that you do want to look at is this thing. It's basically, I don't know what you call this, carrot, WTMDPL. And so whether you're in Yahoo Finance, whether you're in the, you know, the, just the Apple stock app, most of these apps, you can punch this in. And what this will show you is the index. And so the index is the thing that is constantly updating in real time based upon the performance of the 70 underlying stocks, platform stocks, uh, that comprise the index, right? So, so this is free and anyone can look at this. And so it's really interesting. So if you look at the past five days, when... The, the, the stock market was getting pummeled yesterday here, Thursday. The index was up. And so there was some divergence, which was interesting to me. And I was trying to figure out why, why are these platform stocks not going in trend? The other um, benchmarks that I look at are IYW, which is the BlackRock iShares Technology ETF. So that will have SaaS tech companies in it. That will have a much broader range of what it means to have a tech company, right? Where, where Platt and WTMDPL only has platform businesses in it. I also look at QQQ, um, which is the NASDAQ 100. So those are the top 100 NASDAQ stocks, which are invariably much more tech-related because it's NASDAQ. Um, and then SPY is just uh, the S&P 500. So you can kind of see here in the sidebar, right, that at least for today, SPY and 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 the and the index here are pretty much up about the same amount. IYW QQQ are up a little bit more. This is Friday today. Um, but what was interesting when everything was going haywire, and if you look at uh, Spy yesterday, right? So you know for the week it's down the past five days. For the past five days, the index, the 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 platform index is up, right? If you look at IYW, it's pretty much even for the past five days. QQQ, even, pretty much even past five days. So it's been really interesting to kind of try and understand why is this one up? Meanwhile, everything else is basically even um, or possibly a little bit down for the past five days. And so there are some of these kind of one-off things where um, you have the stars group that had the merger. You have... Um, 
market access up. Market access up, but I think with that, but market access, I think, speaks to the other trend, which is that these platform stocks, these platform businesses, they are influenced by macroeconomic shifts like trade, like is the U.S. economy slowing or okay. not, but to a lesser degree. And they kind of just have more ability to forge their own path. And so when you see like the volatility in the market and they've got 85% control of, of, of that sliver of trading, that's a good thing for them. Right. And so it's kind of interesting if it, when you think about the role of these businesses that connect and facilitate exchange and what happens to them if the market is going down or up and down or if there is uncertainty in the economy. And I think that's where when we think five, 10 years out, and you say, hey, if these are the winner take all, the dominant business models of our time, when the market is down, I think, I think they will actually be able to gain ground against a lot of the more traditional players that get hammered much more aggressively. Or more price takers rather than price setters because they don't have the market power that these big platform companies. Yeah, that's my theory. Am I right or wrong? I don't know, but we will find out. As we continue to see how now for the first time ever these these uh, this index performs, and uh, believe me, we will continue to track it closely and keep you up to date on it. So um, the last topic is a future new uh, stock that that would definitely be included in the index, and that is Airbnb. So it looks like Airbnb is finalizing that Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. Um, will lead their direct listing. We've spoken a lot about how direct listings are something that go, I think are going to go hand in hand with platform IPOs. Well, platform listings, where a lot of these platform businesses just have a much higher degree of luxury in terms of figuring out their options to be listed. Do they actually need to raise capital via traditional IPO which is much more manual and just kind of archaic in the process. And basically that's why you have all expensive, expensive, (laughs) lots of fees. And basically humans are trying to just, you know, figure out, yeah, what should this company be valued versus a direct listing is done algorithmically and is really maximizing and, and being much more transparent in letting the market decide what it's valued at as opposed to, you know, 10 or 20 banks. Um, which invariably are getting it wrong. And if and if the banks are happy, then the platform or the company going public has left value on the table and could have raised a lot more money or could have had a lot less dilution. So it, it's a much riskier way to do it that I think is starting to go out of style, at, particularly for platforms. So Slack did a direct, direct listing. Looks like Airbnb is going to do a direct listing. And basically what that is is you just now, uh, Spotify did a direct listing, even though they're not a platform company. What you're doing is just giving now um, uh, liquidity to particularly your employees um, or and your investors who have shares and can now sell them as if you are, you know, and as on the stock market. But you're not also raising capital, which is the difference in an IPO. Uh, so it looks like Airbnb is going to do a direct listing. It makes sense. They um, are have a wildly successful business. Profitable, if, I believe. Profitable. Yeah. And if they wanted capital, they could raise it in the private markets, probably for potentially a better deal anyway. They don't need to go through all of the nuisance that comes along with an IPO. 
Um, so it looks like middle of 2020, they're going to do this direct listing and then will invariably be uh, in the ETF shortly thereafter. So it's recently valued in the private markets around $46 billion, which makes it the largest hotel company in the world by market cap because Marriott is at $40 billion and they're the biggest. Um, so it's just, it's just hilarious that the company, um, that is basically the, the hotel replacement is now bigger than, uh, the largest hotel company in the world. Certainly by number of rooms, uh, they've been bigger for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Now it's basically market cap. They're superseding them. And I imagine it's not too far out where they would start to catch up in terms of revenue. Mm hmm. Oh, here's a good, so, so Slack, it looks like paid about $22 million in fees to do the direct listing as compared to Snap, which had about $85 million in fees and did an IPO and was raising capital off of that. So it's a stark difference. And you can also just get, and you have the risk of just pricing the company incorrectly, getting more dilution or leaving money on the table with the IPO. So. Um, very interesting. Well, that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you for joining us on LinkedIn this time. And we will talk to you again next week. Have a good weekend.